Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 124 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 124, Scott and I are going to be talking about a smorgasbord of quizzing, inside quiz, very, very inside quizzing topics. Uh, we're going to sort of super nerd out on several different ideas. So we're going to talk about different personality types in terms of good and bad person personality types to roles in Bible quizzing. And, uh, you know, in terms of leadership and volunteers and so forth, we'll talk a little bit about some philosophies around coordination of volunteers, because, I mean, everything that we do in terms of leadership with Bible quizzing is from a volunteer perspective. And so we'll talk about what, what are some ideas for how to recruit volunteers and organize those volunteers and empower those volunteers and so forth. We're then going to talk about some hypotheticals in quizzing in terms of, well, what if, forget how this would happen, and it's probably not really possible to scientifically do anything related to this, but if you could magically wave a wand and cause changes in the demographic of certain parts of quizzing how would that impact other parts of the operational focus of quizzing and and we're just really going to explore that from a thought experiment uh point of view and then we'll talk a little bit about the niv in terms of a translation and talk about other translations and the idea of multi-translation and how that could impact quizzing both positively and negatively, and potentially walk into some other tech advancements that we could bring into quizzing. All right, so with all that said, let's dive into the first one. Uh, Scott, take it away. So the first one is about different personality types, which we know that there are many, and what are good roles and bad roles for different personality types in Bible quizzing. One example is that if you are a complete rulebook nerd, like Griffin and I, um, it may be bad to give us the responsibility or the, the freedom to write new rulebook rules. Um, we might be incredible at improving existing ones, um, but our level of rulebook nerdism might cause us to write so many new rules that even if each one is a good idea, um, could make the rulebook giant and hard to read um, and very inaccessible for people new to Bible quizzing, which would mean that putting a rulebook nerd in charge of writing new rules would be bad. Um, I think I captured that, that bullet. Um, so the question is, well, before we get to the question, I think our uh, main point or our starting point is that because Bible quizzing is full of only volunteers, nobody gets paid. Um, the people most willing to spend their time are the ones who are going to be some kind of extra nerd about either Bible quizzing or the rule book or competition or something therein. Um, and it could be that you want a different, different type of personality for particular roles in Bible quizzing. Maybe the district coordinator should be of a different personality or um, an international quiz master, or I'm just kind of throwing out um, potential different roles. And so the question is, what sorts of, I guess, what's, are we, are we thinking of enumerating personality types that fit certain roles really well or fit them really poorly? And then also talk about how do you consistently gather and recruit an array of personalities so that you can optimally run a Bible quizzing church program or district or um, whole top level program. Right. Well, I mean, keying off one of the first things you were talking about, like rule book nerds, I don't, I think there's more than one kind of rule book nerd. Uh, and 
so like I think you were right that there is one kind of rulebook nerd who would be very very bad to give like a, an open ocean license to go create new rules uh like out of whole cloth because they're going to get really really pedantic and they're going to add lots of detail and you know look at all these sort of they're going to they're going to solve the problem by being expansive rather than solve the problem by uh looking for ways to be more elegant but i think at the same time there are rulebook nerds that think the other direction that are thinking about well how do we still achieve uh, the outcomes that we want in the most elegant way, which just basically means the simplest possible way, the smallest number of rules, and have that be some sort of tracked metric in the process. I think ultimately you can't really get a good rule book, and of course, good is subjective, I understand. But what I mean by that is a rule book that is effective for mission and elegant to that effectiveness. So elegant meaning, you know, simple without compromising the effectiveness toward missional outcome. It's difficult to have an elegant rulebook unless you have a rulebook nerd or nerds either involved in the process at minimum, if not leading and ultimately owning that process, but they have to be the right kind of nerd, right? So in a sense, like, let's take it to the field of software engineering, something of which both Scott and I are very familiar. There are software engineers who are quite good, quite competent, and what they do, though, when they're looking at solving a problem is they, they look to add code to a system to add a feature, fix a bug, resolve a situation, whatever it happens to be. That they're, they're looking to always add, add exceptions, add clauses, add methods and classes and so forth. Then there are other engineers, usually more senior, uh, but that's not necessarily the case. But they when they look at the, the code bank, they're always looking at is there a more elegant way to do this thing? Not just add code, but is there a way to think about, say, taking three or five methods and scrunching them into one method or making the flow state a little bit more elegant? And that's, they're nerds of a different sort. And I think you need those elegant nerds, um, <laughs> not that they are elegant themselves, but that they are, their brains are focused on trying to find elegant solutions. I think those are the ones that you truly need to have involved in the rulebook project, both from a, an editing perspective and also a new creational perspective. And in fact, you may even want to have those people, I think, I think, I'd have to think about this a little bit, but I think it's actually best to have those folks be the ones in running and thinking about rule books, both from a creational perspective and an editing perspective. I don't know that there's ever a time where you, where it's a good idea to have rulebook nerds other than saying, you know, progressing, uh, you say bug reports. Um, I don't know that it's a good idea to have additive nerds um, take point over, um, elegant nerds. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That does make sense. I mean, I think there's a need for both. Yeah. I think there is a need for both in, in only in so much as elegance nerds need expansive additive nerds to be able to have a greater depth and breadth of capability of recognizing where there might be rulebook bugs and process bugs and so forth. But ultimately the writing and the editing, I think ultimately needs to come down to 
the the elegance uh folks it's it's almost in in some regards it may be somewhat similar to the idea of say a newspaper where you have writers and editors uh where the the writers need to be you know the folks going out and sourcing and and looking for stories and writing up the stories and the editors are the ones that are squishing the stories down and making them flow uh better and verifying verifying sources and all that kind of stuff it's a very flawed analogy so don't read too much into this um but uh somewhat analogous let's say sure it's it's re reminding me of an idea that my very smart wife had um to find a bunch of people who had never heard of Bible quizzing and give them our rule book and say, put on a quiz meet. And then we just get to watch kind of like a uh, students in an operating theater. Right. <laughs> um, and just see like, Oh my gosh, look at all of this internal experiential knowledge we employ when putting on Bible quizzing that is not clear or stated anywhere. Right. And I think that's why there's kind of a need for for both, almost, as you say, a writer and an editor, so that if someone is creating a rule or even editing it, um, someone else can be like, I don't know what this means. Right. Because they don't have the same deep experiential knowledge. Sure. And there's also a situation where the rule can the rule and rules can exist in the rule book, but be so complex as to be undiscernible to the layman. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's both the case that there might be tribal, uh, not rules, but tribal practices that we are passing down from generation to generation that are not ensconced in the rule book that don't get conveyed or picked up by people just reading the rule book as their only source. But I think there's also situations where people are reading the rule book and the rules are right there, uh, in black and white. And yet because of the complexity of the rule book, it's difficult for them to, read what's there and fully comprehend comprehend it's not the right word but essentially to layer in all those instructions into their brain and actually operate them continuously so for example you might see a situation where a quiz meet in this sort of hypothetical hypothetical world where uh, it's a quiz meet designed by people who have no idea what quizzing is purely designing it based off of a rule book right and they start running this quiz and then you pause for a moment and you say, oh, but you're not following this one particular rule. And they're like, what do you mean? And you can literally point to the very rule in the rule book that's right there and they can read the rule book and go, oh, we missed that. Right. I think that's going to happen quite a bit as well. Yeah. Yep. I can see that. So, I mean, it's just sort of another reason why elegance in the rule book is a supreme goal, right? If you can get a rule book from, you know, 30 pages down to three, you're going to have 10, actually, I would say more than 10 X adoption, uh, assuming that it still works, right? You can't overly simplify, right? As, as Einstein used to say, uh, make it as simple as possible, but no simpler, right? So assuming you can take something from 30 pages and reduce it to three, I think in doing that, you're going to uh, radically improve uh, reading comprehension in your audience that doesn't have that experience, the cultural experience of quizzing. All right. Can you state that again? Um, probably not. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think elegance needs to be a factor in rule book writing and, ed and editing. I think it's direction directly missionally outcome tied. When you say elegance, 
are you using that as a proxy for understandability? Understandability is a part of elegance. I think I think it, it it's a component of elegance. I think of I think of elegance in the sense of like E equals M C squared, right? It's it's simple as simple as you can get without becoming so simple things break, right? And so elegance in software engineering is like, how do you write the least amount of code to actually have the features, functionality, and performance that you would have in all in in other cases, right? So if you have two algorithms in software, let's say, right, and they both produce the same thing, they don't. They both have a certain performance threshold. The code that is simpler and easier to just read is more elegant than the other, and that's I think an analogous situation to say elegance in a rulebook. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I think elegant could come with a lot of um, potential meanings, right? But it's really yeah. about it's it's not elegant like you know a gilded vase, right? Right. Yeah, I'm not talking about elegance in the sense of like artistic elegance. I'm talking about elegance in the sense of like mathematical elegance. Sure. Sure. Yep. Um, do we want to talk about other roles in good or bad personalities? Or I mean, yeah. I like, think... what what other kind of roles are you? Do you have in mind? Like, do you think that the type of person that self-selects into a high amount of volunteering in Bible quizzing is actually poor, is usually poorly suited for a role that we have in Bible quizzing? Probably. Um, but I don't think that's, that's anything that we can necessarily solve for easily, but like people that love quizzing, which is, you know, anybody who starts to get involved in quizzing and notices the value of quizzing, they're going to fall in love with quizzing and they're going to want to try to volunteer because they love quizzing, right? And let's just say that that's a, a pretty wide swath of individuals. People are going to be a, have all kinds of different skills and capabilities across this giant spectrum of humanity, right? So there's going to be some folks who are really great at leadership. Most people are not, right? There's going to be uh, folks who are really great at detail management. Other folks, most folks will not, right? Some people are going to be really great at motivation and encouraging and empathic support of quizzers. Most people are not, right? And so you know, you put all that together and it's like, there could definitely be a situation where certain roles need certain features higher than other features, but have already been taken. Right. So I think this is sort of like one of my little bugaboos. I think it's important when as leaders, you see somebody else up and coming who actually can do your job as well as you or potentially better uh, with some mentoring, you should give them the opportunity to take over your job, right? Like, like, so, you know, the, the idea is always be looking to try to find your replacement from day one, knowing that maybe you won't be able to for a while, but always be on the lookout for your replacement and always be looking for, well, where do I go to next? And whatever that happens to be. So we've had this, you know, situation happen in PNW where we've had fairly, let's say, uh, fairly effective managers of churches, uh, church-level uh, church teams, who uh, just up and left. You know, they 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 were running the program. They weren't looking at or thinking about succession planning. And then they're like, okay, great, my my kid has graduated. 
uh, they're not in quizzing anymore. I'm I'm done with quizzing. I'm leaving, and the program flounders because the next there there is there's no second in command. It's sort of like one person at the top calling the shots for everything, and everybody else is just kind of a uh, a doer uh, underneath that one leader. And then when that leader just up and leaves, there's nobody ready to come in and take over and keep that program humming along. And, you know, sometimes you can find folks who are willing to step forward and put in the work and they kind of have to learn under fire how to do those things, but it's suboptimal, right? Um, so leadership is always needing to be looking for other leaders. And similarly, like in even uh, at the quizzer level, right? As a as a captain, you need to be looking at the folks on your team, thinking, is there somebody on my team who could be a co-captain or even captain next season, uh, or even later this season, if we have, you know, a few folks get added into our roster and we need to reorganize our teams. Uh, is there somebody that I can start mentoring now so that we're ready as a church to reorganize our teams if necessary, even mid-season? So here's a question. I think the, not construct, the existence of uh, a parent of a current quizzer who is leading a church program, leading it well, very into it, who immediately when their kid graduates, stops leading the church program and has done nothing to build any sort of succession. I would I would consider that to be more normal and expected, perhaps unfortunately, than the opposite. I agree. I think and it is so, unfortunately normal and it and it and it needs to change, but you're right. I think it is probably the normative case. So I, I would say like you weren't doing this, but I wouldn't fault the parent for not having a succession plan. I think them not having a succession plan was uh, hurtful to the continued existence of quizzing, right? Um, do you have an opinion on where the responsibility best lies for making sure that um, at like a church level, there is some sort of succession plan for leadership? Well, I, I actually would fault the, the parent, right? Now, maybe the parent is unintentionally setting up a situation like that. I mean, let's say a parent isn't a natural leader or doesn't have leadership experience like in their career or something like that and is volunteering. And obviously for every volunteer, we are thankful, uh, you know, so, so we're not wanting to turn away volunteers or anything uh, like that. But ultimately, even though it's unintentional, the fact that the parent coach, the parent head coach isn't setting up a succession plan is on them ultimately to not do that. Now, what are things that you can do to mitigate that circumstance from happening? I think, you know, at the, at the, at the district level, the meet, uh, not the meet director, the district coordinator can remind churches, you know, please have a succession plan. Please, please be thinking about a succession plan. Uh, let me know if there's anything that I slash others can do to help that kind of thing. I think other parents, uh, in uh, the local church level can say like, hey, I, I notice your kid is a senior this year and he or she is your last kid. And are you planning on coaching next year? Should we start thinking about an assistant head coach? And do should we start thinking about trying to do some handoffs, that kind of thing? And start working that that way. I, so I think ultimately, and even quizzers can, can recognize and see what's happening here. I think ultimately it's really... Every, everyone in the program has some amount of non-zero responsibility to be able to encourage 
a succession plan and a good handoff of leadership and raising up leaders. And it's less about, I think it's less about the handoff, although that's part of it. I think it's more about discipleship, right? Right. We, we, we talk about discipleship. We need to pay it more than lip service. Part of discipleship in quizzing is raising up people to be more than what they are today. And what does that mean? Well, if you're, if you're, an assistant coach, train them to be a head coach. If they are, um, you know, a scorekeeper, train them to be an answer judge, uh, answer judge. If they're an answer judge, train them to a, be a quiz master. And really any, you know, arrow from any one particular job or role or, you know, involvement to another role or involvement, I think is a form of discipleship. So being able to spot opportunities and encourage folks to get into those opportunities is is a good thing and at the same time part of that responsibility and and a, a probably even a majority of the responsibility is on the person desiring to be mentored into some role so you know yeah i'm actively constantly on the lookout for people that I can identify and say, I wonder if that person might be interested in growing into some such role, you know, and typically based on where I'm at as district coordinator, I tend to be thinking in terms of um, officials, you know, in some capacity or another. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily think too much at the church level, although I do, I do sometimes I try to get myself to think in the church level in terms of, you know, continuity. But ultimately, there will be people that I just miss, right? Because there's a lot of people and a lot of stuff going on. So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, Griffin, I am interested in blah, blah, blah role or learning how to become an X, right? Or whatever that happens to be. Then it's like, okay, great. Now I can actually, it's, it's been brought to my attention. I can focus on it. I can say, okay, great. Let's put a plan together. Let's get you prepared. Let's get you trained. Let's, let's do this thing. So somebody comes to me and says, Hey, I'd really like to be a quiz master, you know, next year. Okay, great. I can start doing things now to get you prepared to be a quiz master next season or the season after, or whatever it happens to be. And I can start working you through those learning experiences and pairing you up with people who know what they're doing. So you can see that and experience it. So the responsibility is, is, is really shared. I think it's not on any one particular person's back, but I think the most responsibility for a succession plan is on the, uh, is on the back of the person who is going to be stepping aside or up or, or down or out or whatever. And the highest level of responsibility for mentorship is on the person who wants to receive that mentorship but nevertheless, that doesn't absolve everybody else from having some non-zero amount of responsibility. I mean, it is definitely semantics, but I, I, I think that's the ideal place to put the bulk of the responsibility. But I don't know if that's the feasible place to put the bulk of the responsibility. Walk me through your reasoning or, or your thinking there. I don't think it's reasonable enough to expect a parent program leader to be invested enough in the existence of the program, continued existence, to consistently um, have a replacement for themselves. Well, yeah, sure. So, I mean, another way to say that is most people aren't trained in how to be leaders. Therefore, those who are trained on how to be a leader need to mentor those people. 
uh, and encourage them, right? And uh, and and point out to them. And it can be as simple it can be as simple as the district coordinator saying, "Hey, I noticed your kid is a senior this year, going to graduate. What are your thoughts about transitioning uh, to a different role or finding somebody else to step in or whatever it happens to be?" And maybe there are no other options, right? It could be a very small church, and the person's like, "Yeah, I, there's there's no other parents at my church who want to do this. I'm willing to do it for maybe one or two more years, but I'm not going to be." doing this indefinitely, um, help me recruit or something like that. So I'm not, I'm not saying that the local parent coach who doesn't have leadership, leadership experience is the only person who needs to be thinking about these things. I'm saying they're the primary person for them, for themselves, but that ultimately the responsibility is everywhere. Like everybody has some non-zero amount of responsibility. Right. Yeah, I can probably agree with that. I think this jives with what you were saying, but I think it's it's on that district coordinator to periodically or maybe constantly prod the um, known-to-be-outgoing program leader, right. but not to necessarily bear the brunt of the work work at replacing them. Right. And you don't want to ex- set up the expectation of, well, as a, an assistant coach or as a parent non-coach, I know that the parent head coach is outgoing, but that's the district coordinator's job to talk to that person and figure out a transition plan like that. That's putting way too much burden on the district coordinator that doesn't scale. Um, The only thing that scales is where everybody takes some amount of non-zero responsibility for everyone else. Right. Agreed. Do we want to get into coordinating volunteers? Yeah. So you know, you've been, uh, I'm, I'm the current district coordinator, PNW. You were the, the previous, you know, PNW district coordinator. So we both have some, you know, non-trivial experience coordinating volunteers. What are some of your philosophies around how you would coordinate volunteers? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure I've ever reflected on it. I mean, I really tried to, hmm, cause I'm, I'm looking at your bullets. I tried to give autonomy because I wanted people to take responsibility for the job that they were doing right mm-hmm. um for example one of my scorekeepers always came with like pencils pens uh, a pencil sharpener and an eraser and was like very prepared to do their complete job right not ex- and when i was a quiz master i would do the similar right i wouldn't assume that there would be an outlet very nearby right so i would bring a long extension cord i would bring a backup computer i would bring um and I tried to instill that in all of the volunteers, like think about what you need to do your job and it's your responsibility to have contingency plans and, you know, be ready um, to handle those scenarios. At the same time, um, I was definitely not shy about talking to scorekeepers, um, statisticians or quiz masters when something they were doing didn't meet the standard that I think should be met. Um, so I don't know if that's, um, I mean, at a certain at a certain level of doing that, it would fall into uh, micromanagement, and I don't. I hope I didn't fall into that, but um, that was one thing that I did. And then um, when it came to meet hosts, um, which would be the church facility hosting a meet, sometimes providing lunch, sometimes providing housing, um, I tried to make it as easy as I could on them, and that was more of a you could call it a market condition. <laughs> Because it was so difficult to get hosts that I was willing to do extra work 
to make it easier for them to host. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to um, make sure that things were done. So I started going to a checklist of sorts where I would provide a list of things that I expected to be done. Um, and it was a way for the, the hosts to know exactly what was expected of them. And then they could check stuff off so that I could uh, be aware of at what stage the planning was um so that i didn't have to continually like i don't want to ask every two days before the meet like is this done is this done is this done um other ways of managing you're talking about philosophies one thing i did not do very much that you did a lot more of was finding new officials and training them i i i large i took a somewhat passive approach where i would ask often but i would ask generally not to specific individuals um, and kind of hope. <laughs> so, um, which works out until it doesn't, right? Um, I think those are some thoughts. Please jump in. Yeah, so, I mean, I I waffle. So, I waffle between literally going and find... I don't... I don't, I don't know. Okay, let me see if I'm, I can figure out a way of saying this. I like the idea of intentionally spotting somebody and thinking to myself, that person has the potential to be an official. I'm going to go talk to that person. I try to do that, but I'm not very successful. So I might be successful maybe 20% of the time, and that's probably being generous. Um, and of course, a majority of the times when I'm not successful it's because I'm not noticing. So it's going to be very difficult for me to estimate, you know, what, what is the actual lost opportunity that I'm not targeting, which is why I keep coming back to this notion of like, you know, if you want to be mentored into a particular role, please talk to me because there is a very high probability that I'm not going to notice because I'm distracted doing all kinds of other tactical things. So, you know, I, I, I tried to be and continue to try to be intentional about recruiting uh, but it's not where my brain is necessarily at a particular meet because I'm dealing with like, well, how do I get the meet to work effectively? So one of the things I, I've been trying to do when I have enough officials to be able to do this is I really enjoy being in the role of meet director and not doing anything else because, you know, there's a certain amount of, of stress and work that you have to do getting the meet started and or like organized ahead of time and then started and making sure everybody knows where they're supposed to be and all that good, 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 good stuff. But once you're underway, you know, a few questions into the first quiz and all the rooms are working and everything seems to be driving. Okay. Then it's like, okay, great. Now I can throttle back or not throttle back, I can change my throttle. I can change my mental outlook from a tactical, get this quiz working to a strategic, all right, how is this quiz master doing? Are there things that I can, you know, give them notes on? How is that scorekeeper doing? How's the answer judge doing? Is that senior, that, that quizzer, is that senior going to be sticking around next year? Do I want to talk to them or their coach about potentially volunteering at some point? You know, are there other parents that I want to start, you know, making connections with uh, somebody new who's a visitor? Maybe they're just observed, they, they were invited and I want to introduce myself and ask them if they have questions because maybe they can be a potential new plant uh, for a new quiz program you know, at some nearby church or something like that. So it kind of provides me this opportunity to shift my brain into that sort of universe, a more strategic universe. And I think that's, that's a good way to go when it's possible. The, 
when another philosophy that I wrestle with here is sort of the difference between a flat organizational structure or a a, a hierarchical organizational structure, I think we've tended to go flat org out of necessity, <laughs> but I don't know that it's the most effective way of doing this. So I think in a larger organization, you could develop thin hierarchies. I, I, I'm not talking about like, you know, seven layers of hierarchy or anything ridiculous like that, but saying what would, what would a hierarchy be uh, in terms of, um, you know, or, organizing volunteers? Let's, let's talk about like the officials uh, as, as one example. Let's say you had a pool of eight you know, quiz masters or 10 quiz masters, which would be fantastic. We're not there. It would be fantastic to have a pool of, of let's say 10 really good quiz masters. We don't need 10 quiz masters every quiz. We need three or four. Uh, and so it would be great to appoint sort of a head quiz master or a quiz master organizer slash leader person who they're the person who is responsible for scheduling the quiz masters, making sure, you know, there are quiz masters who are available for a particular meet and assigning them rooms and all that kind of good stuff. And ultimately as, as meet director and district coordinator, I'm ultimately the one who is doing that because we have a very flat org. There's sort of like me and then everybody else. But I think it would be, in a as the organization gets bigger as it grows there are opportunities for efficiency to per delegate certain responsibilities of the district coordinator and the meet director to other folks who can then run those things and it develops into again very small hierarchy really just sort of group leads uh, that are, that are doing certain things. But then when you appoint a group lead for whatever that happens to be, right, you could have a group lead for, you know, all of your scorekeepers that probably makes the most sense for that person to be the statistician or the head statistician. Right. Um, so, you know, there's different ways to think about how to structure that when you have a group lead, those group leads need to have three things from my perspective, they need to have autonomy, authority, and responsibility. So responsibility is the easy one, right? Responsibility is the, well, you're going to be in, you're going to be the head statistician. There's some, a job description for that. And you're going to be in charge of all the statisticians and recruiting the statisticians. There's part of that is described in the job description and you will oversee the the scorekeepers right let's say right i'm just making this up as we go but that's a certain level of responsibility those are the things that you're supposed to get done authority is the you have the power to make decisions to make your responsibilities actually happen right so there are a lot of uh, scenarios bad scenarios not in quizzing per se but in in other leadership uh, scenarios where somebody is given the responsibility for something, but not the authority to do it. They're given the responsibility to ensure that it happens, but they can't make any decisions on their own or to do anything about certain things. They can't decide things. They then have to go and seek permission from a higher up to be able to have anything happen. I've seen churches operate this way where uh, you have a senior pastor who is ultimately the decider for everything. And so you have everybody coming up to them to, you know, making, having them make decisions about everything in terms of like, where are the flower arrangements going to go? You know, um, how are we going to 
change that light bulb, you know, that kind of thing. It all has to come to the senior pastor to make those kind of decisions. And I think that's, uh, that, that doesn't scale, right? Number one. And it also, even if it did scale, you're not getting the best out of your, your, your people, out of your volunteers, because volunteers are going to be in some ways less capable and skilled than you in certain aspects, but in a lot of ways, they're going to be more skilled and more knowledgeable and more wise. So you want to grant them both the authority to make decisions and the autonomy to actually lead their particular area and to accomplish those particular things that are their responsibility so that they can leverage the wisdom and their skills and their thinking that is superior to your own. Uh, and then as a result of that, the entire program is, is benefited uh, from that result. So that's why, like, I think it's important when you find volunteers, give them responsibility, authority, and autonomy. But the flip side of that is you also need to be able to, um, recognize when there is somebody who is well-meaning, who very much wants to volunteer to support the program, but who is not reliable uh, or can cause problems uh, in their volunteering, you need to be able to figure out a way of mitigating the negative that can come from that. And that mitigation can come from a, a few different methods, right? Like worst case scenario, you basically say, yeah, it's probably best if you don't volunteer for that particular role anymore. You know, um, that does happen. It's unfortunate. You try to avoid that, but sometimes you can't avoid that. But other times it's more like, well, I know that this person is really good at these sorts of things, but not these other sorts of things. So I'm going to either just check over them in the areas where they're not necessarily responsible uh, not necessarily somebody I can give autonomy to for these certain areas, or I can pair them up with somebody and say, well, I'm delegating this particular responsibility, authority, and autonomy to the two of you work collaboratively together to bring that out. That's another sort of strategy that, that can sometimes help, uh, because we're, we're all in a situation where, you know, we're, we're the volunteers that we have are the volunteers who step up and raise their hand. And uh, so we have to maximize what we, what we have. Yeah. That was always a struggle of mine. You know, at what point of low performance from a volunteer, is it enough to actually remove, um, you know, because usually, usually the effects are not extremely large, right? Like oftentimes poor performance manifests in uh, slowness, right? Right. So what amount of the schedule slipping due to a few individuals is like warrants their removal, you know? Right. Well, and then there's, there's, there's balls dropped is another, is another metric, right? You have a certain set of responsibilities. You say, well, I need you to do these things as part of your job. And it always seems that one or two of those, you know, 10 things gets dropped, right? Uh, how significant are those things? And then you have to, ultimately you have to make an ROI calculation, right? Um, and you also have to take into account the fact that people are not static, right? They're not machines. You got to say to yourself, well, if I mentor that person, can we improve the situation? Or if I connect that person with somebody else and they work collaboratively as a pair, does that solve that situation? And it's difficult sometimes to be able to predict that stuff. 
And at the same time, you're sitting there going like you as a leader only have a, a finite amount of capacity to be able to oversee all of those things. And you still have to make sure that, that meets work. Right. Um, so, yeah, you, you got to balance all that stuff um, for the good of the program as a whole, but also for the good of the individuals, the volunteers and the quizzers and everybody. Yep. It's very difficult. Well, shall we move on to your next topic here? I think so. Um, so the assumption that I'm going to start with and let Griffin refute it if he wants to is we are benevolently tricking kids into memorizing via the incentive of doing well in a competition. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to refute that. I think that's exactly what we're doing. I would use the phrase overtly conning, uh, youth into memorizing, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's, that's a fair assumption. So, um, my, my first hypothetical question that comes directly from that assumption is, um, well, here, I want to go to the, my second hypothetical first. If we reduce the competitive ability of a, an entire quiz district by some percentage, 5%, 10%, 50%, is there a point at which the district dies? Um, and this stems from, it seemed to me that if the reason that anyone's memorizing at all is because of the competition... If we lopped off the top like five or ten quizzers from a district, it reduces like the um, the either the excellence of the competition or the difficulty of getting stuff right or the that that the competition is less fun and the incentive to do it at all dr- drops. Um, but I'm not sure that that belief is true, um, and I'm wondering what you think Griffin about the idea that if we're, if we're tricking kids into memorizing because of the competition, is it true? If that's true, then do we need some minimum either like excellence level of competition for it to be viable as an. Yeah. So let's expand the word competition, right? So I, I, I want to expand the word competition or at least fork it to mean two different things. The larger definition of competition encompasses the fellowship opportunity, the energy of a meet, um, the, I'm not sure how you would describe it other than using that word energy, where you can walk into a meet that's uh, got a lot of kids, a lot of energy that's going on there. There's something happening uh, there's the, the fun that the kids are happening and that all sort of adds together into this sort of the competition as an event rather than the competition as a quiz. But then the narrower definition of competition is the actual, what is the actual stats? What, you know, are you in first place, second place, third place? What, where are you at in terms of your team, in terms of the brackets, that level of competition, right? So I think there, there, let's say those two definitions of competition, and of course it's on a spectrum, there are many more, but I'm just using those as two examples there. If you reduce the competitive ability of a district by, you know, some amount, five, 10, let's go even to 50%, is there a point at which the district dies? I think in all cases, the answer is yes, but it's bigger, it's, it's a big percentage and I think it's based more on the total number of quizzers than it is on where those quizzers come from, but not perfectly, right? So it, it depends on the motivations of everybody that's there, right? So there are going to be some quizzers in, let's call it the top 5%, who are highly motivated by the competition of the top 5%, such that if you eliminated the top 5% of, of competitors other than that one quizzer, that quizzer would be demotivated relative to, to 
baseline, right? Um, however, I think the bulk of quizzers are not there. They are somewhat motivated by that, but they are not necessarily primarily driven by that motivation and are more driven by the larger definition of competition rather than the narrower definition of co uh, competition. Ergo, like going to your hypothetical question, if you reduce the competitive uh, ability of a district by some percentage, when does the district die? I think it's more, there is a factor there, but it is probably, I don't know, based on a scientific study I'm just making up in my head, let's call it 85% the size of the district and 15% the competitive structure of the district. Interesting. Um, I don't know that I disagree, but I think the model that I'm thinking in my head is, um, would you... Hmm. So I think a difference is... I was previously thinking that almost every quizzer is a non-zero percent motivated or incentivized by the competition, but not just the competition, the quality of the competition. And it could be that that statement is correct for almost any excellence level of the competition. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I agree. And I, I think what you're talking about there, I want to just be clear, you're talking about the narrow definition of competition rather than the expansive definition of competition. And I think Correct. that's true. I think everybody at every level, well, maybe not everybody, but let's say well over 90% of quizzers are to some degree greater than zero influenced by the quality of the narrow definition of competition. Right. Because if they were influenced by not just the narrow definition, well, by narrow definition of competition, do you mean abs um, its level of quality? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the quality of the of the direct competitive event. So the idea of like, how is the individual doing in terms of individual average? How are the teams doing in terms of uh, the quality of their quizzing uh, against uh, a baseline of zero, right? So the idea, if, you, if you're seeing a lot of quizzers get 90 quiz outs, um, that is a higher level of narrow definitional comp, uh, of competition than, say, if you're only seeing maybe one or two people getting 90s and most other folks are, you know, getting 70s or 80s, that kind of thing, right? So the the higher the narrow definition of competition, I think there is a motivational influence to let's call it 90 plus percent of quizzers, but I think it's a minority influence for uh, the positive. Interesting. Cause I think the model that I was, or the scenario that I was working through is if m the majority of quizzers are some non-zero percent influenced by the quality of competition, as you start reducing the quality of the competition, everyone's motivation level starts dropping, which cascades. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's that is true, right? Um, I just think that because you're talking about small percentages, I'd like, like let's go to the larger percentages first, right? I'm going to say that over ninety percent. I don't know exactly where that cutoff is, but let's say it's well over ninety percent of quizzers are going to be influenced in this way. But because let's say again, based on a scientific study, I'm just making up here let's say it only influences on average 15% of a motive of the motivation of an average quizzer. It, sure. it does affect across the board. And again, and of course, everybody's different, right? There are some people where it's going to be, you know, 60% influence or maybe even more 
others where it's going to be like a 5% influence uh, or maybe less. But let's say, let's, let's, let's say on average, it's 15%. Um, assuming that that is true, then yeah, as the competitive ability of a district is diminished, the motivation is diminished as well, but it's a small relative diminishing relative to other things that are higher motivators, right? And so like like size of the district, I think, is uh, oddly a very important thing, right? The more churches you're, you've got involved, the more quizzers you have invo involved, the more energy there is, quote unquote, I don't exactly know what word to use other than using the word energy, but the more energy there is in the competition. And in fact, the, the fiercer the competition is at the higher levels of any particular given meet, the larger the number of participants, the pool of potential, uh, potential participants are that can get into the higher level. Sure. So then a follow-up question is, Almost everything about the structure of Bible quizzing, I'm speaking mainly for PNW, but I don't think it's terribly dissimilar in a lot of the other larger districts, um, is that it, it's structured in a tiered way to reward those who are um, more motivated by the competition and doing well in that narrow definition of competition, right? Sure. Where there's, there's prelims for everybody, but it's a limited amount, and maybe we already have divisions. And then um, there's something that um, self-selects the teams and quizzers down to the more competitive, and we continually do this, right, within a, a specific meet with over the course of a year when it comes to an out-of-the-district meet, um, the way we structure rules to want to differentiate between uh, the fourth-best quizzer and the eighth-best quizzer in our district. Um are all of these actions and time spent the place that we want to be spending our time resources um, if if maybe it's less important than I thought before? I don't want to speak too broadly for like quizzing as a, as a whole. Sure, sure. So, I mean, let's just limit it down to P&W, right? Um, I don't. Yeah, I think I think we have to get into, into the weeds of specificity and really nerd out about it before we can actually make determinations on a case-by-case -case basis. Because like on one hand, I think it would be disastrous for quizzing to de-emphasize the competitive nature of quizzing, right? Um, to eliminate aspects of quizzing that are the competitional aspects, even in part drastically alters the motivational level and can have a huge negative impact on, on the program, right? So many years ago, uh, there were some folks who advanced the idea that quizzing P and W quizzing in particular, but quizzing on the whole should just eliminate all individual averages that everything should just be tracked on team scoring. And that was it. And we just do away with individual averages and their, their, their theory behind it was that for a third or maybe even half or two thirds of the quizzers who are not in the upper echelons, um, that individual averages were actively disincentivizing. And I disagreed at the time, and I disagree now, because I think for the folks who are in, let's say, the upper half, uh, the individual average is motivating. It's a, it's a significant part of the, of the puzzle. And for folks who are not there, it's something they can both, they, they can either aspire to, or they can simply ignore it, right? And still, and, and enjoy quizzing, 
for the larger definition of, of competition. Does that kind of go toward your question? I think so. I mean, I, I'm thinking also like, like in PNW, we would run six prelims and then brackets. And so as a result, our quizzers were quizzing more than almost any other district, which contributed to um, the ability of the best quizzers and also their ability to separate, right? Right. You're taking one, one team to internationals, you would love the f- number five quizzer to actually be better and more than the number six, right? <laughs> Even if it's small. Um, and so that was one thing that probably happened because of all of the prelims, there was less downtime. But it could be that that provided extra incentive for um, a very small percentage of the quizzers. And having the number of prelims halving in half um, might have been better for all of the quizzers that were more motivated by the non-narrow definition of competition. And it would have had, if any negative impact, a really small one on the very, um, the top segment of quizzers. Right. Yep. And I think it's just interesting to like, think about that because when I was a quizzer, all I thought about were all the ways quizzing was set up to like let quizzers differentiate differentiate themselves or not and when i was running the program i wanted quizzers to have every ability every possible ability to differentiate differentiate themselves right um which would come from consistent quiz mastering or really high quality questions or the ability to quiz a lot um or the ability to go to a meet like great west um and it's it's interesting to think about um, could optimizing for that segment of the quizzing population actually be a global sub-optimization? See, and I don't think it is because I don't think you're actually optimizing for one particular area, right? Like, I think ultimately the the stuff that you're optimizing for, the stuff that you were just listing actually optimizes the incentives for everyone and there are some who won't notice and won't care that you're optimizing, but I don't think that they are hurt in their, I don't think their motivation levels are hurt by that optimization of the stuff that you listed, right? Instead, it's sort of a non-factor to them. Uh, but for the majority of quizzers, it is some factor. And for some quizzers, it's a strong factor, right? So for example, let's say you have a certain baseline of, fair, impartial, accurate quiz mastery, right? Um, Where that baseline is not perfect, but it's, you know, not awful. Like it's some amount of okay, right? And then you say, well, I want to invest some amount of effort in improving from the baseline, whatever that happens to be. Um, So that's improving fairness, accuracy, correctness of rulings, uh, professionalism and quiz mastery, all of, all of the things and more, right? So let's say you start making those improvements and, and you're able to bring about some sort of improvement over baseline. I don't see anybody in quizzing having their motivation levels decreased as a result of that. I think everybody is either increased or stayed neutral. And I think probably, again, based on a study I'm just making up in my head, like 80, 90% are positively motivated by it. And, you know, 10 or 15% are neutrally motivated, you know, as a result of it. And then, of course, as you approach the higher end of the competitional spectrum, the motivation is going to be higher, right? It's going to have a higher positive motivating factor. But I don't 
in, in all the stuff you listed, I don't think there's ever a negative uh, unless I'm missing something. Uh, maybe not. I mean, I think one one area is the level of difficulty of the quiz question, because for the vast majority of quizzers, the amount of required material is going to be the largest determinant of how difficult a question is. Right. And I, both when writing, when editing, when teaching question writing, all of that, I leaned into questions that were longer, right? Um, and by longer, I don't mean longer to become key necessarily. I tried to write just and encourage really good questions. Um, but if you could write an answer that was four words versus a more complete 12-word thought, I would always side on the the 12 word. Um, and that meant that, I mean, it's not like knowing the specific quizzers, but you're, you are reducing the ability of a large percentage of quizzers to get these, those questions. Right. Right. Um, I know some districts are very aware of the length of a quote, these two or a finish these two in PNW. We generally weren't right. We, we wanted it to just, hey, do, do we think these verses work awesome together? And hey, maybe they're long. Um, we thought the same way about situation questions, right? We didn't, we didn't say, hey, this is both a long two-verse quote, and we're asking three situation questions, and one is a pronoun clarification from two verses back. All that together, we think it's too hard, and we're not going to write it, right? We didn't, we didn't say that. We said, hey, do we think this is a good question, and it's a good test? And it... it probably was the case that we were adding questions into the set that um, a large percentage of the, of the quizzers never had a chance to get correct. Yeah. And that is definitely deemed motivational. So I would, I would define motivation as the competitional capability to have a probability of success, right? Some amount of success. So imagine playing a video game that you've never played before and it's extremely difficult. You know, it's set on brutal level or higher, right? Whatever that happens to be. Obviously, I don't play video games all that often, but let's say you set, you play a video game on one of the highest settings and you're just crushed. Uh, it's not terribly fun. You're like, well, this is dumb. Why am I doing this? Similarly, a video game that is incredibly easy is, you know, maybe it's fun for a little while, but it starts to get boring and tedious and you can't go anywhere. And ideally what you want is a video game designed where it starts out fairly easy, fairly straightforward, and it progressively gets more difficult the stronger you become at playing the game, right? So you're always engaged. Ideally, that's the target that we want for quizzing. And a lot of that is done naturally through the quizzing environment, um, you know, through brackets, uh, quizzes become increasingly difficult uh, toward the championship quiz uh, in a particular meet, uh, just naturally because you're filtering down to the higher and higher teams toward the, the championship quiz. And so that kind of, it, it allows people to, you know, play this game and not get bored with it because things are, the things are easy, but ultimately engage with it to a particular point but not beyond the point where they can't engage anymore, right? So in a sense, that's why I'm, I'm such a big fan of question sets that have balanced questions in them where they, they have short, easy answers and long answers because I want the short answers to be available for people who 
are uh, you know newer quizzers or haven't memorized quite that much or maybe not as as uh, uh, in great amount of detail you want to provide the opportunity for them to be able to get something uh, some sort of positive uh, reinforcement out of the out of the quizzing event but you also want the longer questions so that the higher tiered quizzers have the oper uh, opportunity to differentiate themselves and not be bored, right? The last thing you want is your top 10% or whatever it happens to be being bored during prelims and only really get anywhere uh, in terms of their interest level in brackets. You want it to be interesting the entire time. I think there's an, an analogy here to like baseball. Uh, I am not a baseball player, but I did play a little bit of baseball and t-ball when I was really young, right? And why do we, why do we have t-ball? Um, apart from the fact that it's incredibly cute, uh, we have t-ball because when I was a t-balled aged person, if you threw a ball at me, I would have ducked. Like, I, I don't think I would have been able to hit it with anything. I, you know, like, like forget a bat. Like, I, I don't, I don't even think I could have hit it with the can of a garbage can or something right um or the lid of a garbage can so you know we make it easier on me and we put the tee ball there and great now i can i can hit the ball with uh, that's on the tee and i can run to first base and always get struck you know get thrown out by the time i run to first base but i've hit the ball i've engaged in the sport i've done something and i can start i can be like okay cool i did something now i can start getting uh working my way up right i can start getting better and better at it if I get up to bat and um, uh, what is it? What was his name? Randy Johnson. If Randy Johnson is pitching to me, um, I'm dead. Um, like I'm, I get demotivated very quickly because I have to gain skills so significant to be able to hit a Randy Johnson pitch that that I and and I I have no opportunity to gain those skills because the pitch is always too fast for me to be able to actually experiment with like i i i might get lucky one time out of every thousand at bat or something like that but uh it's not enough for me to learn and it's not enough for me to be motivated i'm going to very quickly be demotivated and be like no this is just this isn't for me and 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 walk and i, I don't mean walk in terms of walk the base but walk in terms of leave the competition right so ultimately you know yeah in quizzing i want to see a scenario where we reduce the bottom like if you imagine the competitional structure in a range of uh easy to hard i actually want to take the easy end of the spectrum and make it easier while simultaneously taking the upper end of the spectrum and making it harder and in fact a lot harder and the idea of having a much wider range there uh, I think provides for higher total uh, motivation because, you know, it, you provide the opportunity for people who are just getting into quizzing to get something out of the competition. Even if it's a small thing, they can get something out of it, but then not boring the people who are, you know, in their senior year, they've been quizzing for, you know, f four, five, six years, whatever it happens to be. And they're really good at the sport. You don't want to bore them with just a simple game, you want something that's complex and energetic and the opportunity for them to uh, distinguish themselves. Yeah, and that all makes sense. I th so I think if I told you, like the existence of, of quiz questions in a set that two to four, only two to 4% of the quizzers would ever be able to get correct doesn't concern you by itself. That alone doesn't really concern me, no. Um, 
you just you it, it matters you want about a the certain set. range. Yeah, yeah it matters about the range, set. Yeah. And, and and that makes sense because you know those really like I wrote questions and I'm like, there's probably max three quizzers in our district that could ever get this right um but that was you know a really tiny percentage of the questions written right and there were plenty that were gettable by the vast majority of quizzers but that but um, that so is I think something it's interesting oh go ahead well sorry sorry that's that's that is something that's very important though because we have to underscore that point that it needs to be a small percentage of the set right um it it it, it you, you know, like you said like a couple three questions or something like that i mean it could probably be a little bit more than that if you've got a set of like six thousand questions but it needs to be a a vanishing minority of the set because uh, so so and 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 i really want to underscore this because i don't want to be flippant about the idea that yeah have incredibly complex hard questions in a set it's totally fine and give carte blanche to the idea of saying well let's have quote six verse questions uh, that only one or two quizzers in uh, the competition can achieve if you because it's very, very easy to quickly see a question set flip from generally effective and motivational for every quizzer to deeply demotivational for like half the district. Right. Um, I'm I'm trying to talk about something that I don't I haven't formulated fully in my brain yet, but, um, you know, I think I'm correct in that at the district level, the vast majority of difficulty for a very good quizzer is, you know, how quickly are people jumping? Can I jump on something that's knowable and unique? Um, whereas for a, an inexperienced quizzer, the vast majority of difficulty is how much stuff do I have to say to get it right? <laughs> um, you could read me the entire text of a, of an interrogative, um, which puts it easily in one spot. But if I have to get 17 words, right, <laughs> even um, not verbatim, not word perfect, then I'm going to struggle. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's, I wish that there were ways to modulate those aspects of difficulty for different types of competition. For example, I have long disliked how at internationals, um, really the only, the, I mean, not the only, the main part of the competition was, can I win a jump? Because the vast majority of one jumps were on, or at least a high enough percentage of one jumps were on stuff that was knowable. Um, and so you could score plenty and do well. And so, so much of the, the competition was around, um, sure, the precision of timing, but also a huge amount of luck when just about every quizzer was jumping at the same speed. When I really wish that it was known that there were some questions in there that were so difficult um, because of the required material that um, it was less about winning the jump, but more about command of the material. Um, so something like a quote these three or quote these four or a three-verse situation quote or something where everyone on stage could know that it's coming, but because of the differing levels of preparation, less than 12 quizzers were even willing to jump on. Um, and that sort of ability to, or you know, modulating of the difficulty of a question and what contributes to its difficulty doesn't really exist now right the only modulation is the quizzers jumping right yeah very true very true maybe something that should get looked at for potential future change exactly because if you know i you wouldn't want it to be on every question but like if it was a quote these two and a quizzer could say hey 
can I quote the four and you get double points or 50% extra points or something. It could be an interesting kind of thing, right? Where um, it's a different sort of, it's a different way of rewarding um, material knowledge for a very excellent quizzer. And at the same time, you wouldn't want this every question because then it, you move ever closer towards that boring quoting B, right? Right, you right. You need to strike some sort, some sort of balance where we want to occasionally re- reward just excellent breadth knowledge of the material within a 30 second or 40 second time period, um, but not always. Right, right. Indeed. Have we run out of time or are we going to... No, let's, uh, you want to talk about the last couple things here? Um, we've got a few, what, what, a couple of extra bullets in our, in our list here. One thing I did, I wanted to talk about kind of briefly is, um, this notion of, you know, the NIV translation. We've talked about multi-translation before, the concept of multi-translation before. And I was doing a little bit of digging into some stats around translational uses, different translation, uh, different translations in the U.S. and Canada and how they're used. And it, you know, it turns out that NIV represents less than 20% of all Bible readers. It's, it's like 19 point something percent. So it's very nearly 20%, but it's slightly less than 20% of, of Bible readers. So the simple reality then is if you go from a universe that only supports NIV to a universe that is multi-translation, you have the opportunity of increasing your growth market, right? The, the, the market that you could, uh, evangelize quizzing into grows by five X, right? A fivefold increase in growth opportunity. If we go from NIV only to multi-translation. Now that sounds great, but there are some interesting hurdles when you're talking about multi-translation. One of them is question writing, right? So question writing scales linearly with translational increases. So if you're, if you've got a, you know, particular section of material, let's say you're jumping on Luke, right? Uh, and it's okay, great. So if you're only using NIV, you're writing what five, 6,000 questions or something like that for, for Luke, uh, give or take a little bit, um, assuming good quality questions, you're probably in that, I don't know, five or five or 6,000 ballpark for Luke. So then, okay, great. That's 5,000 questions. Let's say that takes a certain number of hours of time of writers and editors and a coordination process and a collaboration process. And this is not, it's not insurmountable, but it's not a trivial investment of time, a, a trivial, trivial investment of energy. Now, if you go from NIV to NIV plus one, right? So what is that plus one? Let's say the NASB, right? Well, now you have 10,000 questions that you have to write, uh, you know, 5,000 from each one. That's really hard because now you have to double the number of readers and writers and the coordination thereof is significant. And of course, then the other big issue is you need to ensure that the quality of each question set is very nearly the same to each other, right? So for example, if you have writers uh, of the NIV set and you have writers of the NASB set, and those two groups are different, you may end up with a different set of quality coverage style between the NIV and the NASB that will then render a non or an inconsistent 
uh, question experience between these two translations. That's not good. So you have to not just double the amount of effort when you double the number of translations, but you have to double plus sum, where that plus sum is some sort of extra oversight for quality control and not just quality control from a make sure it's above a certain bar, but make sure that they are roughly equivalent above the minimum bar of quality for both translations, right? And then, of course, if you add a third translation, you're talking about not just 3x, you're talking about 3x of the original plus three, you know, 2x of the difficulty of, of managing that. And the thing just keeps scaling thereafter. And so if you're talking about, you know, potentially supporting four or five different translations, you know, modern, good, effective translations of the Bible to again, be able to go after that five-fold increase in growth opportunity for quizzing, you're talking about question writing and editing being non-viable from a scalability coefficient. And then how do we solve that problem? So anyway, does that make sense so far? Yeah, it does. It makes total sense. So then like, what are, what are some strategies for how to solve it? Well, uh, you, we could try auto-generating questions. So, I mean, in certain ways we can auto-generate questions now. So we auto-generate in CPQZ or CPQZ, we auto-generate um, quotes and finishes, uh, finish this is and finish the verses and quotes and the finish this is are are they are automated but they're automated based on a particular algorithm that there is not 100% agreement on is a good algorithm <laughs> like the it is not a, not, not it is not universally agreed that the CBQZ algorithm for generating finish this is is ideal uh, but it is you know workable and it and it's consistent right so it does that uh, but then there are other question types, right? Interrogatives, multiple answers that are not auto-generated currently. Are there ways that, that that could be possible, assuming a universe that does not include advanced, you know, self-aware AI? There probably are. You probably would have to make some changes to the rulebook or um, like kind of alter types to some extent, right? Like you could define um a valid situation quotation right and say you know we're gonna have a question on every every quotation and every new sentence within every quotation um that removes a lot of manual choice around those um it probably still would be pretty difficult to auto generate the questions on those quotations um but um i mean you can it, it would require newer different types right you could have some sort of a pseudo finish the verse question where the quizzer is given a phrase not necessarily from the beginning of the verse and they have to um, complete some amount of material around it that could be auto-generated um, because there are language constructs or punctuation or capitalization like things that you can you can use to give yourself kind of signposts for doing such generation. And I think at the end of the day, um, you would, even with changes to question types so that this is all objective agreed upon, you probably would still end up with a question set that is less enjoyed by the bulk of quizzers, but that wouldn't be your main criteria of whether you want it or not. It would be, is it worth it to, to not require 
hundreds of hours um, from people writing and editing and maintaining questions across districts, um, but also open up um, ability to use other translations easier. Right. Well, and in part of doing this, you know, thinking through different question types or different question concepts for this, I think it's important also to note that we definitely want to have different question types, right? So like it would be tempting to say, well, let's just eliminate all question types other than quotes and finish, you know, types. And then we can auto gen those just like we do today. Well, okay. That's, that is a viable option, but I think that removes a certain spice to quizzing that is significant enough that it potentially turns quizzing into something that is less enjoyable uh, for quizzers and potentially motivationally enough that it wanes quizzing. So like, I definitely want to see a rich question type uh, pool, but I think it's also useful to question question types for their respective motivational level uh, encouragement level and testability is really the big one, right? If you've got two question types that are, let's say, you know, slightly different, but they effectively test the same thing, then I think that's complexity. I think that complexity doesn't have a, a positive return on investment. And therefore I would be leaning more toward having a more elegant set of rules and a more elegant set of question types rather than say more complexity in the types purely for the richness of the question type library. Yeah. And it, it, I think it's hard to develop a model of how to judge that because I think multiple answers don't test anything different than interrogatives, but I sure think that they're fun to have included. Right. Absolutely. Right. So you have to then say, well, what is the value of having a multiple answer type as a distinct type? And certainly it doesn't, I don't think it really tests anything different. Um, is there a net ROI positive motivational value to that versus the 5x fold increase in growth and automated development of questions? What, how do you run those analysis? And part of it is we all, we, we also I mean, we can estimate some of these things, but you can't really know until you try. Uh, it's one of those things where you have to experiment, see what happens, uh, examine the results, and then be willing to make iterative uh, alterations along the way based on feedback. Right. And I think another aspect that you and I have kind of forced ourselves to do is a lot of changes to the current way of doing Bible quizzing would probably be received poorly. Um by all of the current participate participants of Bible quizzing. Yes. <laughs> but if, you know, you put, you pause the work. Well, if you zoom ahead five years, let's say quizzing stops existing today, you zoom ahead five years and then recreate it. Um, and you don't have like benches or you don't have chapter references or you don't have whatever. Um, it probably wouldn't be received poorly by any of the people who never knew the old way. And so it's to try to think like, what are, what are things that would are actually a net negative or a net positive for a proposed future, right? That is not um, beholden is too strong a word. And when I say received poorly, I don't mean like people are being petulant. I just mean they don't like it, right? Which is a right. genuine reaction. Um, but that could be a less important measure of whether or not something is a useful change. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um you know, there's a, you go to the ice cream store and instead of having uh, vanilla, chocolate and strawberry, they've added, 
you know, 30 other flavors. And uh, is is this a good thing or a bad thing? And they've and they've dropped vanilla or vice versa. Right. Um, does this ultimately get more people to buy more ice cream or not? That's the you know, and if, if somebody really, really, really liked plain strawberry ice cream and Baskin Robbins doesn't offer that anymore, uh, they're going to be disappointed. Uh, and that's unfortunate. But then it's like, well, what's the bigger What's the bigger mission here, right? The bigger mission of Baskin Robbins is to sell more ice cream. And I think the bigger mission of quizzing is to get more people to memorize scripture. Right. And I think it's key, like Baskin Robbins goal is to get more people to buy ice cream. They could be very resolute and say, you know, um, if you ask people who rode horses what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? But Henry Ford thought that they wanted a car. Something completely different. Well, Baskin Robbins could say this, but if that causes them to pick flavors or whatever that causes people to buy no ice cream, it doesn't matter how resolute they were in repeating that you know idiom from history. <laughs> they were right. wrong about it. <laughs> yes, indeed. So ultimately, you have to be right about people actually wanting a car as opposed to a faster horse or whatever it is that you happen to be proposing. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Anything else you want to throw into this episode? Um... I don't think so. All right. Well, and on that bombshell, I'll say thank you, everybody, for listening. want to remind everybody that, of course, you can email us uh, if you have any disagreements. Uh, well, actually, any kind of feedback at all. We'd love to hear from you, but we especially uh, prize uh constructive criticism or or uh counter arguments uh and so we very much would like to hear from you please email us at iq at cbqz.org so iq for inside quizzing at uh, cbqz.org or if you're in canada cbqz.org and you can follow us on twitter our account is at inside quizzing and you can chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the bible quizzing uh, Slack channel inside quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. You know, Griffin, what we should do is try to profile Luke and then say lots of things on the podcast that we know would cause him to email in um, because that would make for a much more interesting future episode. That episodes. is a good point. We should actually, we should, we should intentionally try to create an episode to annoy Luke to get him to email us. This is a good point. I like this plan. But anyways, thanks everybody for listening and thank you Griffin for co-hosting. Mm-hmm.